0: Hey, I'm Henry. And I'm Dan. And we're a couple of fucking sweaty nerds. Alright, Dan. So, uh, today's topic uh, is kind of, are we loving our parks to death? Um, how our recreation and visiting these areas that we love are impacting them? Is it is it good? Is it bad? Is it some of both? <laughs>
1: Uh, so this idea kind of stemmed from it's been a long-standing talk along amongst land managers, but I'd say it became more of like a a public forum in 2016 when the New York Times put out a opinion piece and the, entitled "Are We Loving Our Parks to Death?" and and the uh, question kind of still stands to this day, like what's the the proper use of some of these areas, and then um, what are some of the implications of us? Uh, playing around outside in the in the woods um, to do so.
0: Yeah, I think it's just important to think about this um, because going into the future, as we have these areas, how are we impacting them? Can we keep using them in the long term, or are we going to have to make some pretty big changes if we want to keep using them like we are right now? So uh, talking about this, I like to think about Edward Abbey, Um, I read his book, Desert Solitaire. Really good, kind of comparable to um, the, I'm totally blanking, Walden, and uh, also Sand County Almanac and books like that. Um, He's a naturalist, and that book was about his time that he spent at Arches, before it was called Arches, and how he kind of, a lot of it was him watching this area get developed from not being developed at all and how he kind of felt like it was almost soiling the place, um, putting paved roads everywhere. He likes to call national parks national parking lots. Um, and he, he brought up these ideas that um, I really kind of agreed with and they resonated with me that, like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be able to drive right up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, hop out, take 30 seconds to glance in it, and hop back in your car. Maybe that should have to be a bit of a more like arduous journey for you. That might have some more meaning at the end when you get to the edge of that.
1: One of the big things that Abby argues in this book is that, yeah, uh when you go out there and you have to kind of find your own way and you get a little you get some dust on your boots that it kind of instills this like this care for the land that maybe you don't get if you're just driving through the park and snapping a selfie. Uh there's some statistic out there that um like something like ninety percent or more of tourists in these parks never uh leave a hundred feet of their car. So ninety oh percent of the tourists. So um I'm happy that we're in the ten percent and we've explored a little bit, but geez. Um, That's pretty wild. Yeah, it's pretty wild to think about that. Kind of along the same vein there, there's been this talk recently about adding a um kind of like tram system from the top of the Grand Canyon down to the base of that. Um, what, do you, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Is this some ridiculous American <laughs> joke that's going on, or like, does it have some, some value behind it? What do you think?
0: You know, I can understand it from the perspective of, um, and this goes for development in natural parks as a whole, of providing options for disabled people to be able to experience what we're experiencing and I think that's really important. But I think if other people that are capable of walking on, <laughs> on their legs um, are doing that, I think it's going to take a lot of that experience out for them. And it's going to make that place just a lot less wild itself, too. Uh, I think there's really something to getting your ass kicked by nature once in a while that makes it so much more meaningful and enjoyable to be in. Um, Nature isn't always fun to be in, in you know the the difficulty and the challenge in it is is part of why it's so um, enthralling for me. The
1: people with their selfie sticks can take pictures of you as you're walking down the trail underneath them as they're cruising <laughs> on the tram at, with yeah. the air conditioned
0: I'm sure looking up at that might <laughs> change my experience. <laughs> yeah, it definitely would on change hiking.
1: change the experience a little bit. <laughs> There's a couple places where the, something like that has happened. There's um, a couple of drives in Colorado now that have recently been put in um, that you can just drive to the top of like a 14 or like just short of the peak or something. Um, I have a buddy that over the summer, he like, he like parked his car at the bottom of this mountain and did this like 12-mile hike to the summit or something like that. And when he got to the summit, he said that there was like... A bunch of dudes vaping, like yeah. as they get out of their car and taking a like, <laughs> drinking a beer and throwing the can on the side of the trail and then like cruising back down, and, you know.
0: Yeah, well, I I think you just must not have heard that high altitude vaping is a new sport and it's <laughs> it's actually pretty physically demanding on your body, Dan. It was probably worse than that guy's hike up there. I'm sure
1: that they were pretty dizzy by the end of their vaping experience there. So, <laughs> yeah. so yeah.
0: Getting a good old Nick buzz on top of a 14er. Yeah, sick.
1: Um, So over the summer when we were uh, doing some field work, there was a couple of these kind of issues where, you know, development or not development uh, came up. Uh, working as like in restoration is kind of this hard thing for me sometimes because I do love playing outside and, like, being able to go on runs on the trails and all that kind of stuff. Um, One of the particular places we were working called Pheasant Brands had some issues. Um, There was a trail run that went through it uh, through the park, and the way it was routed essentially uh, ran through a lot of the park, and um, the managers were worried that the trails were going to be just totally fucked up by the end and um, kind of affect some of the... the, uh, the plants that are around the sides of the trail and stuff like that, um, as well as people with dogs off of leashes really um, have a big impact on some of the wildlife that's there, and including ground nesting birds. They'll go sniff, sniff out and potentially um, like mess up the nests or hurt the eggs, things like that, um, and just like tromping through some of the like rare plant species that are in the park as well
0: yeah and I think that can be a pretty difficult decision is like what do we value more the the bird species, especially some of the rare ones, or do we value the fact that a lot of people use that area as a place to get out into nature but also to give their dogs some exercise that's a lot of people recreating outdoors is taking their dog for a walk and peop and people do love this park, you know
1: that that park was we always saw people on the trails all the time, and um, there was kind of like the, some forum discussion, and there were some strong opinions. People really wanted to be able to bring their dogs out to the park and stuff like that, so um, it's kind of like a, a difficult decision sometimes, I think, to um, to make.
0: Yeah, and ultimately, they ended up um, kind of compromising. For a while, they wanted to get the dogs out because they really couldn't enforce people keeping them on a leash. Um, they posted a lot of signs, but some people still wouldn't follow them. Sure. So what they ended up doing is closing down some trails where um, there were there was better bird habitat and trying to maintain some of these areas, hoping that people won't go through them. But as we saw, uh, a lot of people still hiked those trails, <laughs> and some people would get angry and take the trail close sign and just break the wooden stake in half like... Oh, this will show them not to close the trail. I'd like to point out too that it's it's like
1: these aren't like young kids necessarily in this park who are breaking the signs either. It's like you know middle aged people snapping the signs because they're pissed off because their dog can't walk through this this trail or something like that. but I think um one of the one of the trails that was closed off was really growing in pretty well after a while, and I would imagine within the next season season that's going to be effective not having necessarily That trail um, won't necessarily affect people once they don't know it's there anymore. They'll still get to see all the different parts of this prairie and and be able to walk their dogs around the park. But maybe um, that compromise is good uh, because then you don't have to deal with worrying about people with dogs off leashes as much. Um, if there's just no trail through the particularly sensitive areas.
0: Yeah, I agree. Most of the trails that were closed down were kind of just shortcuts for getting back to a main trail from one that branched out farther. Um, but shout out to that guy who walked up to us and yelled at us about spreading dog poison <laughs> around. There's this uh, man who approached us one day. with He had something like five dogs around him. Um, and he saw that we were spraying some herbicides because um, we were controlling some invasive species. He seemed to think that we were spraying it right next to the trail, and that it was dog poison. And he's he had a dog that had gotten nose cancer in the past, and his just his words really uh, gave us some laughs later on when he he said, "Stop spreading that." poison around, and after he uh, seemed to think that all the plants were weeds in the prairie when we tried to communicate that we were killing invasive species. Yeah, restoration ecologists
1: are the next uh, terrorist of the world, spreading poison everywhere. They're all weeds anyways. Might as well just chop it all and make it into a giant dog park, according to him. Yeah, yeah. So I think some of the kind of debate on the whether trails should be open or like what's the proper use for places kind of span to like a bigger um, kind of like a bigger problem. And that's like uh, what's the proper amount of like land that should be used for like preservation only uh, or like being protected land and how much should we be inviting people to get out here to kind of like instill a value of stewardship into into them if they have these cool outdoor experiences um like I think you and I have had in the past it kind of makes you want to be like a a steward for the land cuz you care about the places that you're um recreating in um but like how much how much land should be accessible to your average person to have those
0: experiences and um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's important. I'm sure our upbringing and the experiences that we had in wild areas had a big impact on why we went into natural resources. And I think it's good that there are different land management models out there. There's things like wilderness areas, which really are hardly managed at all other than trying to keep people's impact on them very low. There's national parks, which are paved and are extremely accessible because I bet there would be a lot less people going to parks if you couldn't just drive right through them. Even though I might not think that that's the best way to experience them, that's still better than not experiencing them at all because that person may go back and value those wild places quite a bit more just because of that experience that they had.
1: Not to mention the fact that, you know, Paying the park fee of going in, people are more to, more than happy to do do so. And you know, the more people you get in there, the better. In that case, and then when it comes down to things like voting, um, if there's if there's a vote over a place that you've been and you particularly have a beautiful picture of, or you know, even if you were six steps outside of your car with your vape, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, maybe maybe you'll tend to to vote on the side of the the place you've been versus a place that you know, um, may be beautiful, but if it's, if it's held in some kind of way that you, it's not very accessible, then um, you're less likely to go find those places.
0: That's right. And I also really appreciate the state natural area program that we have in Wisconsin, which manages land for the communities, um, specifically rare communities, things like prairies, bluff prairies, alkaline marshes and swamps, um, old growth forests, And they really aren't managed for recreation. Sometimes they only have maintenance trails or deer trails that you can hike on. And you're allowed to go there and you're even allowed to hunt most of them too. However, they aren't focused on let's create these really nicely maintained trails so that people can walk through the area. And I think it's important that certain places don't have that same level of impact that these other parks do.
1: Did you want to talk a little bit about how Westport Drumlin was routed and the little hiking trail and how it how it was to kind of protect those
0: sure. so, particular sensitive areas. Um, another one of the properties we worked on this summer, Westport Drumlin, uh, it was a state natural area, and it was specifically set up so that people could not ac- access the higher value resource that was towards the back there was a remnant prairie on top of the Drumlin, which means that um, since the land was, um, I guess, taken from the Indians, <laughs> I was, I was going to say settled, but it I was mean, no, settled it so before funny, then. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but since since we've come in, most prairie areas have just been completely turned into agriculture at some point, and m- most, if not all, of the native species have been lost. But because of it was a drumlin and it was really low quality soils for farming and a really steep slope, this never got turned into cropland. So there is native plants that have existed there since the last ice age. And I think it's, it's really important to have those areas. It's really important to have those genotypes of those plants that you can't find anywhere else. And the way that it was set up so that people wouldn't go walk on it because we don't want people hiking through it, trampling good plants, carrying invasive seeds on their shoes, was the parking lot was set up on another hill so you could see the drumlin from there, but there were no trails to the drumlin. There is actually a farm field in between. And the... um, the drive in area that actually led you towards the drumlin was a locked gate, and that's that's where we worked from. But regular people are not allowed to go, well, they're allowed to, but they're kind of uh, encouraged not they're to. They're routed go back in there. a way that kind of,
1: you know, if you're just going there for a hike, you know, you're going to kind of not be led to that area. Right. Um, kind of keeps and pre- preserves some of that. Um, I think that that kind of brings up another important point with this kind of recreation talk is that there's are some areas that are particularly more sensitive um, and kind of like need need to be left alone more than other areas. And I would I would argue that you know some of those areas that are less like ecologically sensitive or imperative to preservation of species diversity or something, those areas can be kind of used more heavily and maybe have, like, those better trails and stuff like that. Places like, like you said, like, national parks really have um, a place and um, national parks are also routed in a way that kind of, like, help keep people further away from some of the more sensitive areas.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. I think getting more people outdoors overall is a very good thing and I never want to seem like I'm pushing back against that. Even if it is six steps out of a car.
1: <laughs> sure. Six steps
0: out of a car better than zero steps sitting on your couch. That's right. Well, Dan, we uh, we both enjoy different types of recreation in some of these areas, um, whether it's hiking, mountain biking, climbing, foraging, hunting, things like that. Um are there any impacts that really stand out to you about the activities that you're doing that you try to be conscious of as you're doing them? So
1: I think um, something that's been particularly on my mind lately um, has been the impact of mountain biking in certain areas. Um, I've gone on a lot of different mountain biking trails in like the past couple years, um, and I've noticed that there's like a lot of development of new trails as well. Um, but as of recently, there's been some jurisdiction talking about mountain biking in certain wilderness areas or certain trails that people hike on, and there's been a big kind of ban on on biking, uh, especially out west on a lot of trails um, that formerly were open to mountain biking. Um, and I feel... Uh, As a person who loves mountain biking, I feel that it's important to have these mountain biking trails and there's definitely areas uh, that mountain biking is really, um, it kind of like plays to mountain biking and it's really fun to have it there. Um, I would argue that the most important thing with things like biking or even climbing as well is that there's a time and a place that it's like appropriate to bike on, on these designated trails or climbing areas. But there's also times where you maybe should just, like, pick to do something else in a day. Like, let's say um, it's really rainy for, like, three days straight, and it's, like, been sunny for half a day, and you really want to go mountain biking. Um, or maybe picking a mountain biking area that has, like, a lowland in it isn't necessarily your, your smartest choice, because you're really going to um, kind of degrade these trails really fast if you kind of use them in the... In proper time and a place, and I think that that's really hard for some people to do. In climbing, there's also closures due to like animal, like nesting birds. Um, I know that the whole month of June on Devil's Tower, uh, they have a closure for different hawk nesting and things like that. And uh, I think it's been hard for some climbers to kind of stay off of off of the area, especially if they want to go on this like big trip around the country or something and like june is the time that they'd be driving through the area but i think that it's really important that when we use the land we use it kind of like in the proper way and sometimes that means not
0: going out on certain days right and with the mountain biking i know there's a for the madison area there's a whole bunch of different trails around there and there's a website that you can actually go check where it says the status of them and whether or not you should uh, bike on them just to keep them at a at a good quality and keep them from being degraded, um, not riding on them when you're too wet, and making sure that people are maintaining them. Definitely. Something that I've been kind of getting more into and I've been thinking about my impact in is just foraging and finding wild foods and eating those. And I specifically try to target invasive species so that I'm actually having a positive impact on these areas that I'm going into whether I'm eating like garlic mustard or rusty crayfish out of the the river near here which are another invasive species that do a lot of damage but there's some native species out there too that I I like to try but I try to make sure that if it's a plant that I'm collecting it from an area that has plenty plants around And if there's a way to harvest it but keep that plant alive, I try to do that too. Sure. You
1: should uh, share some recipes someday on on what to to make with all these different foraging plants. Maybe we'll have an episode in the future about a little
0: more foraging action. Yeah, maybe. I I have to learn some more recipes myself, but (laughs) I've picked up certain things along the way that have made it a lot easier, like my crayfish traps make it a lot easier to get a couple meals of crayfish rather than going and, like, hand-collecting them at night. Love it. (laughs) Nice. So this kind of gets us to this idea of, like, how are we interacting? We've already touched on some of this with animals um, when we're in these parks. I always cringe a little bit when I see those videos of tourists, like, crowding some large mammal that's walking along the road in a national park, whether it's a bison or something. I think there was even a story recently about a baby bison that died after these tourists like put it in their car and drove off with it. <laughs> just some really kind of scummy stuff, even down to just like feeding squirrels or throwing bread at ducks. It, it, it might seem all fun and fine, but I don't think people really realize what they're doing with that.
1: And I think part of the responsibility isn't necessarily on these individuals. I don't think that people, like, threw a bison in the back of their car to, like, kidnap or something. I think the story behind it was they, like, thought it looked cold or something (laughs) like that, Um, and they threw it in their car to, like, warm it up, and eventually that led to it. Um, Or, like, feeding animals, you know, like, if you feed certain, like, birds or whatever, bread, like, that can be bad for them or something like that. I think, uh, like, education on the forefront is really um, kind of a big helper to kind of combat that that issue. And I think um, the general knowledge of, like, any person who's not necessarily in the natural resource field, they might have no idea that they're doing anything wrong. Um, kind of like a funny story that I have about this is, I'm, uh, my mom, when she was, like, six or seven, she, like, saw a goose walking up to her, and um, it seemed friendly enough at the time, and her, her impression when she looked at the goose was that the neck is really long, so that, like, that must be how you pick up a goose. <laughs> so she reaches out, and she kind of, like, grabs it by the neck, and it goes absolutely wild, and apparently, you know, the goose the goose went hard on attacking her for a little bit after that eventually she like got away or calmed down or whatever but wow um i think maybe some like education i don't know on on what level or where where that education is going to come from but you know a little bit of just education on like what what the impact of what you're doing kind of goes a long
0: way yeah yeah i i definitely agree I think the impact that we have can have unintended consequences, too. Like when I was working with the DNR out in the Driftless region of Wisconsin, it's really common to see timber rattlesnakes out there. And timber rattlesnakes are supposed to rattle very loudly at you when you walk by them. That's their defense mechanism and their way of making sure that you don't step on them or try to eat them if you're some other kind of animal. Um, But... The three that I saw, one of them I came very near to stepping on, never rattled at me. They just kind of coiled up and looked at me, and what I was told by my supervisor there is that in that area, there's been such a negative stigma about rattlesnakes that people have just been killing every single one they can find. So it's the ones that kind of go unnoticed and aren't making themselves known with that rattle that are surviving, but then if you're hiking through the woods and there's a rattlesnake on the trail that you don't see, you're probably going to step on it because it's not rattling at you, and then it's doing a lot more damage than if it had been rattling.
1: Kind of perpetuates that, uh, that kind of cycle there. Same thing with, like, if people feed animals like, like bears, or bears find a food source and they don't have a source otherwise, um, they might become more, like, normalized being around humans, and then naturally like a wild animal like a bear eventually if they spend enough time around humans then they're going to something's going to happen that um oftentimes they have to like put bears down or things like that if they become too much of a nuisance in in communities and you know that's not the bear's fault it's that people are so comfortable with them being around or they they leave resources available to these these animals that you know don't necessarily mean
0: any harm but Right. They're wild
1: animals. They're not. They're not people. You know, you can't teach them their their table manners.
0: Right, and you know, I'm no perfect person either. I have to say, when I was in uh, Zion and Bryce Canyon, even though there was just constant signs that said stay on the trails, I was always so tempted to go hike off to some beautiful area that I saw because that's the way that I usually do like to explore um, really cool places. But I realized like. They, you really have to stay on the trails there because there's just so many people, so many people. walking through that if everyone's doing that, there's there's not going to be any vegetation. Everywhere's just going to be a beaten down footpath. And, uh, you know, growing up, I used to torture the shit out of frogs. <laughs> I, not on purpose, but I'd go down to my local frog pond and I'd, you know, catch a big ice cream bucket full. Put it on my handlebars, bike on home, and I'd put it up in my treehouse in some sort of container uh, with some water and some land for them to live in. But um, I'd come back and it would always be like 90 degrees in there and there'd be some very smelly dead frogs uh, sitting in my treehouse. So, I'll put a little caveat on there. Um, like, Henry, right in his house right
1: now, has some sugar gliders that he's been raising as well as um, some geckos, right? Quite a few geckos. Quite a few geckos, yeah. geckos as well. So, Henry's not this torturing person. It's a process to get good at, at yeah. making things. Yeah, loose, I had to
0: level up my animal taming skills, yeah <laughs> um, so many you've improved
1: a lot, you know. It's many not, animals
0: had to die. <laughs> you don't.
1: You don't still have buckets of frogs in in your
0: room no, at ninety no, degrees. No, of but, course not. You know. um, the the reptiles that I own are in the Sugar too are of course, captive bred, so they weren't just taken out of the wild. Um, and I I work hard to provide proper care from diet to good enclosures for them to live in. Sure. All right, you got anything else on the on the menu here? Or? Uh, no, I think that's about all I got. I guess I just kind of want to finish with saying that, you know, as you're going out and enjoying these places and you're doing different activities, trying to think about what you might not have considered in the past, what's being left behind after you're gone. Each fo- Each footstep that you take could be killing plants, and I'm not saying don't go out there and pave new trails, but... Just stay aware of what you're doing and try to think of those impacts. All right. Thanks for listening.